fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to FGGGBT. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We're the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Great to be here, Dan. I'm so excited about this. As our viewers may or may not know, I am a world expert on zombies, having been one of the faculty involved in teaching the MOOC, a massive open online course, on The Walking Dead. So I'm excited to be doing this episode. Well, I'm very excited, too. Now, don't forget, I have an honorary PhD in zombology, which we're going to get to in a second. But before we do that, we have to talk to our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, I'm afraid to ask, but where are you broadcasting from this week? Dan, I'm in the lair of the Red Queen, one of the most advanced AIs ever made. And I just cannot wait to learn more about how this AI works. All right, Ben, but you better keep an eye open behind you because the Red Queen's main defense mechanism is razor-sharp laser beam crisscrosses that can chop you into 100 million pieces. So be careful. I don't want to lose you that way. But we're talking about Resident Evil. Uh, the, The video game series actually celebrates their 25th anniversary this year, and I'm very excited about it. We're going to look into both the video game and the movie series, but if you've seen or played neither, I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. This is about an evil bioweapons company named Umbrella that unleashes a horde of zombies and other biologically altered creatures on humanity. And, you know, I realized that we hadn't looked at zombies at all on this series, guys. So I'm very excited about this. I think zombies are well, we're well overdue to talk about them. And as I mentioned, I'm a a PhD in zombology. And because of that, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one thing, guys. You know, it is George Romero, who coined the term zombies to refer to flesh-eating ghouls. They're actually ghouls. And, you know, that's that's kind of... George Romero changed everything, which I think, guys, that shows you the power of the media, the power of film to influence pop culture. Uh, I don't know what you think about that. I'm I'm actually really impressed by that, Dan, because I, I had no idea that zombies were really just another name for flesh-eating ghouls. Um, I, I had a deep question about zombies my whole life, which has always been, why do they want to eat brain? Uh, I mean, I mm. guess they don't really have brains in the typical, you know, depiction of zombies. I've also been fascinated. Uh, I mean, I'm just glad to have you on the show as a zombie expert. Um, you know, I'm fascinated by the fast versus the slow zombie. So fascinated that I was actually on a fascinating fights episode um, <laughs> that discussed which zombies would win. You may recall mm. this, Dan, because I believe you were there too. I was there too. I was there as well. And you know, I should also tell you what a zombie is, because I think that's very important, and that may answer some of your questions. So obviously, the zombie that we know in American culture is actually a ghoul, but a zombie, this is part of Vundun culture, and this is a West African uh, you know, magical ritual. It's a religion, really. Uh, and you know, I did a great Fascinating Nouns episode with an expert named Don Costantino, who discussed this, because zombies are really just mindless slaves who are, uh, you know, their 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 mind and their consciousness has been harnessed and captured by a hundun, which is a witch doctor there. And this is, the, the difference is, is very stark between these two concepts, but that doesn't answer the question about brains. Um, but, you know, Ben, as the person with the physically largest brain on the team, uh, are you ever worried about this at all? I mean, I'm definitely worried about it, but I, I, I'm not worried about them just eating my brains. I feel like, you know, you hear the 
the mumbling brains, brains. But they seem to eat everything. You know, we every zombie depiction I've ever seen, they're you know they're not just eating the brains. They're eating the arms. They're eating the legs. They're eating the guts. You know, it's not a, it's not a pleasant way to go. And I, I like this flesh eating ghoul thing that you brought up. I hadn't realized that it was just a kind of a rebrand by uh, Romero. You know, I I just realized something, Ben. Um, when you when when they go around mumbling brains. Maybe they're not only wanting to eat brains. Maybe it's nothing about the eating brains. But I wonder, Dan, as the expert, it strikes me, are they just detecting our brain signals and coming after us to eat our bodies? So the brain is the signal that attracts them, not the thing they want to eat. I think that that's an interesting question because you got to remember this is a reanimated corpse. So... I don't know what I don't know the exact number of senses that have been reactivated, but I'm guessing they have a limited ability to, you know, for touch and for and for sight uh, and taste. But I think their smell must be heavily advanced, and maybe they're smelling those big juicy brains. Uh, I think maybe that's the key to it, and you know, because when they change into these zombies. In the movies, there are several different ways, and this is unlike most other creatures. Sometimes there's a religious force that brings the dead back to life. Sometimes it's radiation and technology. And other times, it's a virus like we're going to talk about today. And of those, I'm sure you guys have seen lots of zombie movies. What is your favorite, Denon? I'm very curious uh, what your favorite is, given how squeamish you are about gore and horror in general. Well, I think, you know, if you stop and think about it for a moment, Dan... The answer is staring us in the face. I've, I've already made, I think, a record number of fascinating um, either fights or fascinating FGBT episodes. But let's go right to Scooby-Doo. It's clearly Scooby-Doo and Zombie Island because it's the safest movie to watch. <laughs> Fair enough, Dan. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm guessing, Ben, you went in a totally different direction than Scooby-Doo. Uh, not super different. I think my favorite is Shaun of the Dead. I really like the more irreverent, jokey take rather than the... Uh, intent to be scary kind of mess with you take that a lot of the tr- more trying to be scary movies are doing. I really like that fun uh, lightheartedness that Shaun of the Dead has. I-, I do have a question for you, Dan. Have you quantified this? I feel like you like the movie with the most score, independent of all other aspects, but I don't know if that's measurable and if you've actually done that experiment. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I don't love the gore so much as I love the scare. And I don't think either one of those, unless you're in Monsters, Inc., I don't think you can really detect fear or gore. Um, You know, I think that uh, I I really like, so here's an example. I really like the Night of the Living Dead, the original, George Romero, the original quote-unquote zombie movie. And I like it because it it scared me as a kid. I remember watching it at a neighbor's house when I came home, uh, probably too young to watch that movie. And I kind of grew up in, you know, in the country. And so walking across the street at night, seeing this big empty cornfield uh, right behind my house, uh, it was very terrifying because it was very similar to the movie. So I really liked that movie. And it's the one that started it all. And George Romero got a couple of swipes at uh, writing the script for the Resident Evil movie. He didn't end up writing or directing it, but I thought that was really interesting because I found the movie to be a great homage both to zombies and to the video game itself. So I'm very excited that that we're going to jump right into this. Um, and I know I don't think you've played any of the games, Denon, um, but what did you think about this after watching the movie? I have to admit, Dan, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the movie. Now, the fast-forward button is a great thing to, for handling gore, as is closing your eyes. Um, those both mm-hmm. work very well. Um, but yeah, I was shocked at how much I enjoyed this movie. There was a lot of really cool elements to it, a lot of things to think about, a lot of strategy involved. 
who was really the bad guy and the good guy in this. Um, and so, yeah, fun movie all around. I love that you bring up who's the good guy and the bad guy, Denon, because it, it's so tricky in things like this, you know. I mean, I think obviously Umbrella is the bad guy, but you, you're never really fighting Umbrella in it. You're fighting all these horrible monsters. So, you know, who do you focus on? The the symptoms, you know, all these zombies or the evil corporation that's really behind it all? I think that's a great question. And, you know, I want to tell you one other quick little anecdote before we get right into the T-virus, which is the main driving force behind those creatures you're talking about, Ben. But I remember playing the first Resident Evil game, and there's a very specific point where this creature turns around and you realize it's zombies. you got to remember, when the first movie came, when the first video game came out, we didn't really know that it was zombies. And it's kind of zombies, but it's also some of those biologically altered creatures we talked about earlier. But I very distinctly remember playing the second one, Resident Evil 2. Great thing about it, it had two CDs back when CD, when video games were on CDs. And you could play either one, and either one, it, you played two different characters, and it affected the storyline. So depending on who you played first, changed everything that happened in the game. And I loved that. But at the time I was playing it, I was, uh, I was an RA in college, and this was before any students were there. So I remember playing this in a very... The Shining-esque, uh, car the carpet from The Shining was all over the floor in this very quiet residence hall. And I was the only one there. And I remember just getting jump scared out of my mind and, you know, peeking out, looking down the hallway and being even more scared because I thought there was going to be a little kid on a tricycle. So I really loved this. And then in that, there's a gigantic police station. And I'd never seen a police station that big until I moved to L.A. And it's very similar to the, uh, the Beverly Hills police station. And I think maybe they took a little bit of that from this. Was your dorm a secret entrance to any science labs on the campus because that would have made it even scarier like the mansion um, I love secret entrances to scary science labs that is a great question I don't know I wasn't pulled into any secret experiments, but some of the people that lived on my floor were a little odd. It wouldn't surprise me if they were used as experiments or, you know, college kids are always good for, you know, a couple extra bucks to use some of those psychological experiments. <laughs> I don't know if the school was in on that, but, you know, Den, and I'm sure you've offered kids some, some money to take part in your phone-based experiments for sure. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's not much opportunity to do that. We'd be wealthier. We could fund the lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that lab, I'm guessing you're more into foam and uh, ice Melange Fnords or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Ice Melange and fo um, Foam, Dan. Right. So we, we don't have to worry about messing with viruses. I, I have yet to have a virus, living virus in my lab. Well, if you did, I'm guessing you would not have anything to do with the T-virus because this is a very interesting virus. It does two things. It reanimates dead cells and it mutates living cells. You know, in the, in the video game series, it's derived from a flower. The progenitor virus is derived from a naturally occurring substance. But this I thought was really interesting. Uh, ben, I know when it comes to reanimation and biology, you're the guy to discuss this with. Yeah, I really like uh, the Red Queen's description of how it, you know, there's always a little bit of electricity going on in your brain as you die, uh, and how it can kind of jumpstart that and get you back to a reanimated state. Now, I don't think it's really getting you all the way back alive. I don't, you know, clearly the zombies of Resident Evil aren't thinking creatures beyond the base instinct of going and finding, you know, sniffing out alive brains and then eating the flesh of those people. But it it's enough to get your, your basic instincts going of moving around, uh, presumably your blood is pumping to some degree to to power your muscles. You know, it, it gets your basic functions back up and running, which is a really cool thing. 
What I like about it as a virus, Dan, is we often think about the virus attacking the cell to replicate itself, thus causing the disease and kind of killing you. Um, and it needs that living cell to be able to replicate. That's a key piece of viruses. They just can't replicate on their own. Um, and so in a sense, this is a virus that creates the host it needs to replicate. Um, mm. And that's a fancy sort of additional evolutionary state that it could make, that as long as it has a basic cell around it, even if the cell is not fully functional, it figures out how to repair elements of the cells to bring it back to a functional level, at least some basic functional level. So that, I think, is fascinating right there. I think that's a good point because, as you know, when, when I hear Ben describe it, it sounds like you're kind of, kind of trying to jumpstart a car, like your body is a dead car and you're trying to jumpstart it. But, Denon, I like what you said about the environment because the other part of this is that mutation. You know, in the movie, we see that the T-virus mutates upon acquiring new DNA. So, like, one of the hunters bites um, one of the guys and acquires that new DNA and then shifts and alters and changes. Um, but this thing can kind of mutate rapidly and unpredictably. And I think that's why some of the scientists in the video game series are, are kind of messing with it to see what it can do. Because in a lot of ways, this is like the movie The Thing, where you have, you know, from outer space, this, this thing comes down and it starts to mutate and change and affect biology in a different way. Um, ben, I'm curious what you think about how this virus operates in both dead and living tissue. You know, thinking about it after what Denon said, I, I wonder if is the first thing it's infecting when you're dead, is it is it your dead cells or is it maybe infecting the bacteria that's starting to eat you and mm. using that as a starting point to reanimate your body? Because when you die, your actual living cells are pretty pretty cooked until things start going, but you have all this bacterial uh, mass in your body that you could use to kind of get that jump start going. You know, this is exciting, Ben, because it allows me to mention other episodes of us of the past. I mean, if you think about it, Dan, one of our favorite things in this series in our podcast is gut bacteria mm -hmm. and all the great stuff it does. And maybe what they're counting on is that gut bacteria out, outliving your average cells when you're dead, in addition to perhaps other bacteria that comes in to break you down. Um, so this may be the negative feature, or depending on how we look at it, the positive feature of gut bacteria. It allows the T virus to reanimate you. Well, and I think another thing is interesting that it does, and I like what you guys said there, because, you know, you mentioned a lot of things then in the show about advanced healing being cells kind of growing out of control. And that's what cancer is, is it's cells growing out of control. What would happen if we could control that? I think that's a fundamental question to the T virus is can we control out of control mutations? You know, can we somehow harness them? Because as we see at the end of the first movie and in the third video game, the Nemesis Project is this idea that you can, you know, kind of create out of a human, create this, uh, you know, a walking gigantic zombie, but that you also have control over and that can mutate and adapt to its environment. This is similar to what you're saying that the virus does on a micro level, but this is now happening on a macro level. Um, do you think it's, you know, Ben, do you think that this is, that the virus is giving its attributes to the living cell, to the human, uh, or whatever biological entity it's been injected in? I think it's doing that, but I think, I think of the virus a bit more as a catalyst where it's, bringing together uh, different, uh, it's bringing together genetic material from a lot of different things, your, the infected included, to create what it needs. You know, we see 
these uh, BOWs, these bioorganic weapons, having all sorts of different abilities that are kind of weird. Like some of them have heat vision, some of them are a lot bigger than a normal human can be. And some of it's mutation, but I think some of it is also, you know, they talk about splicing in other stuff, uh, animal DNA and other things. So I think some of that is also just, you know, this T virus has the ability to, from a broad uh, from a broad catalog of genetic material, bring all sorts of f fascinating and powerful attributes into its uh, victims. I, I really like that, Ben. And I like the idea that maybe it's less the T virus itself mutating, but I liked your analogy to a catalyst. The T virus is managing in somehow what appears to be an intelligent fashion the mutations of the host that it's in to protect itself. So, you know, a typical virus only really concerns about making more of the virus, right? And there's just this balance of keeping the host alive long enough to get transmitted to another host. And you don't really care about the qualities of the host. This feels like a virus that's been designed to actually improve the host it's in, perhaps to stay around as long as possible in both that host as well as other creatures it infects. Um, which actually brings me to an interesting point about zombies. I always wondered why they're not bothering to eat other zombies. And it might be that the T-virus detects itself in the mm. other zombies and realizes it's unnecessary. That is actually defeating the purpose of spreading itself. And that's why you don't get a lot of zombie-on-zombie -zombie violence. Uh, what do you guys think about that one? I think that's perfect. I mean, it, it perfectly explains why you don't have that zombie-on-zombie -zombie violence. A virus that attacks its own carriers would uh, be self-defeating and would fail evolutionarily. So clearly, the virus has evolved to not do that poor survival decision. Well, I think it's interesting. I, I, I think when you look at the T-virus, right, I mean, the CRISPR technology, this ability to splice in and out genes, uh, you know, very easily and genetically alter things that we use now, that's derived from a virus. And what, what I think is interesting about the T-virus is it seems to kind of turn on and off different genes in order to grow or, or whatever. I'm wondering if, you know, if that's part of the magic that makes this virus have this sheer number of capabilities to turn on and off genes in these hybrid scenarios because the you know if you combine two species together now that virus has double the amount of attributes that it can pull from um, I don't know what do you think about that Denon yeah I think that's a lot of what you see going on is this selectively turning on and off the genes from all the different hybrid things it's bringing in. I think the fascinating thing is, because the virus clearly is not itself a thinking creature, you know, what is the inherent um, molecular biology that allows it to make it look like it's making these choices? Um, and I think part of what's going on here is it's probably doing super fast evolution, and we just don't see the failed examples. Mm. Um, for every super killing mega beast or whatever you want to call it, a super dangerous weapon, there's probably a failed mutation that just turns into a puddle of goo or dies immediately or has something bad happen to it. And those just don't make the video game or the movie because they're less interesting. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of failed experiments down in the uh, hive where the mutation didn't go as desired and 
you know, there's a lot of puddles of goo to clean up. <laughs> I think there's plenty of puddles of goo because Umbrella, the corporation that made the T-Virus, they're into a lot of interesting things. Uh, you know, it's what I love about the, the Umbrella, the company, is in the movie they, they really, you know, kind of point out exactly what they do. They're, they're a massive company. Nine out of every 10 homes has their products. They're in healthcare, computers, and medical products. And I like that because it's this company with a front that then has its profit, profits generated by military tech, genetic weaponry, and vitamins viral weaponry. Uh, and I think that it, we are very close in our modern world to having these gigantic companies that provide a lot, both on the consumer front, but also, you know, on the on the engineering side to the government. You know, I think we may not have um, an umbrella right now, but I feel like it's it could be in the future, which is a little scary. What do you think about that, Denon? No, it's definitely scary. And this is why the, the whole concept of monopolies is scary. This is why we're looking at all of this, I think, right now with big tech. Um, it's kind of funny, the name Umbrella, because, of course, it's an umbrella of a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, 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 but it, but Umbrella is so pleasant. It protects you from the rain, mm -hmm. right? And, and it helps you out. And I think that's the interesting thing here, right? On the surface, you've got this umbrella coverage of your house and the classic smart home. And what's fascinating is in most movies, it's the smart home that goes bad and starts killing you. But here it really is the evil behind the scenes elements of the company that goes bad and starts killing you. So I kind of like that twist. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, because it's about this virus that gets out, right? And so, if you're if you're this company that is creating these dangerous viruses, you have to engineer a facility that can keep it in, and that's kind of what we talk about here. Ben, you mentioned the hive, which is this gigantic underground structure where people live and work. They don't even get to leave. This is about 2,500, Let me get that right. Two thousand five hundred feet underneath Raccoon City. Uh, the, the you know logistics blows your mind. How would you be able to create this underground structure, and what would you need to keep it both secret but also as extensive as it is to operate the way that it does? Yeah, the the secret's really interesting. So, from a depth perspective, it's not that it is impressive, but it's not something we don't already have. We have lots of mines uh, in our current world that are at least as deep as this. So if it, actually that are deeper by uh, double almost. Wow. So it's not crazy to think about being able to excavate a structure or excavate the room to put a structure like this into. The real question is how you do it in secret. Like how did they build, how did they get that much dirt out of Raccoon City without anyone noticing? Or maybe people did notice and they just didn't care. And they were just like, oh, yeah, we're building some stuff, you know, go away. Don't worry about you it. Know, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But, you know, to build something like this, you'd have to haul tons and tons of dirt out of the way. And then you'd have to bring tons and tons of concrete in to make the, this safe structure. So it's it's really an impressive piece of logistics just to build the thing. And then, you know, if there's thousands of people working there, you have this whole logistics line of bringing food in, bringing food out, bringing gar you know, bringing garbage out. You know, it's it's a really complicated thing, and keeping that hidden just uh, goes to show how powerful Umbrella is in that that they're able to kind of hide this. You know, maybe they, you know, had a skyscraper above it that they also owned, and they kind of laundered the trash through that skyscraper so that no one really noticed it. <laughs> trash laundering, I love that. I've never heard of trash laundering, but that's probably it. <laughs> well, there is a fundamental flaw in this system, and and you know, I. It's the least believable part of the movie, despite all the science and tech going on, that it kept secret for one fundamental reason. And Ben, I think you will 
understand this as soon as I say it, and Dan, you probably get a sense of this. You know the first time they have a successful breakthrough on any technology or virus, the scientists are throwing a major pizza party. Mm -hmm. That much pizza being delivered simultaneously to one point on the planet would be detected. Um, I I, I get the everyday laundering of garbage and food, but the pizza party is going to give them away. Yeah. Well, they do have that secret mansion, so they do have a house that can act as a front, but getting, you know, 10,000 pizzas delivered uh, might draw a little bit of suspicion. Um, Because, you know, we got to remember that this is a gigantic structure built under a city that's almost a million people, and they're working on these bioweapons with only one real secret exit. I mean, this is massively irresponsible. There's a good chance of a leak, and so they have to have safeguards that are in place to keep all this stuff protected. And we've mentioned it several times, the safeguard in this movie is this AI facial recognition um, powered conglomerate of, of techno wizardry, and that's the Red Queen. She runs everything, and as soon as a leak is detected, things go haywire pretty quickly here. Uh, ben, what do you think about this as your safeguard, your ultimate uh, decision maker, this automated system to shut down and uh, basically stop the spread completely? Yeah, I think it's really smart to have a an AI that can make this uh unbiased logical decision when things go down in in the hive you know you know someone has to make the tough decision to lock everybody in and hail on them so that you know you can contain the virus and to have a person have to press that button is is very tough so to have an ai do it for you is is the right way and to give this ai the rule of keep the virus in no matter what you know, it's kind of 2001-y in, in the, uh, you know, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that sense. But at the same time, that's the mission. And you're going to get that success if you have an AI that has that sole purpose as its most important uh, rule. You know, I completely agree with Ben on the aspect of the AI needing control, Dan. Um, the part I really found funny Um, But it's a dark humor. You know, it's kind of a sick humor. I shouldn't admit it was funny. Mm -hmm. Um, Is the mechanisms the AI used to lock this down, right? This was a very, very odd element of the design, particularly the whole, well, we're just going to kill everyone in the elevator by making it fail. That was an interesting, like, design choice as... That had to be programmed in somewhere. It's like, if we have a virus leak and everyone's going to be infected, you have to lock them in and kill them. Oh, let's make sure the people in the elevator, we just kill them in the most gruesome possible way. And you know me, I'm not into gruesome. I'm, I'm, right. I'm really questioning some design choices here. Yeah, that, that's an elevator that would never pass a uh, state inspection. So clearly the state didn't know about this kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're right. I, I mean, then I don't know what you do with them. You know, I mean, if we're going, I mean, first of all, I think there should always be a human being in the loop on this. You know, we've got some of these issues that are going on now with automated weapon systems where you have these, you know, the, the ability, these systems with the ability to kill being, being sent out on the battlefield without a human in the loop. I think that that's scary. So when you're looking at the red queen who's making these unilateral decisions to murder everyone in their facility because a leak might get out. I mean, you know, to go with your your system here, if they know that the virus is in the ventilation system, which is how this gets out and into the building, why don't they just shut down the ventilation system, have better detectors in there? Murdering people seems like, I don't want to say overkill because that's a terrible pun, but it seems excessive. Wouldn't you agree? I I definitely think um, there's that element of this whole murdering people excessive, particularly since in this particular case, 
you, you know they've just been infected with a thing to reanimate them. So I'm not sure what you're gaining here. Um, I just, like I said, I love the AI. I actually think the AI is doing its job and doing the things right here. I have real questions about Umbrella's design capabilities in every other area of this building, Dan. You, you mentioned the virus getting into ventilation. Never should have happened. Other major question I have. We find out by the end that there's actually an antivirus. There's a cure. Why the heck isn't this built into the system somehow, right? So I, I just have so many more questions. We don't have enough time to go through all of my questions. <laughs> well, it's an interesting point because they could have easily had like a safe room and then the AI could have shuttled the people who are not infected into that safe room to give them the antivirus. I don't know if the antivirus was secret or not. I forget. But I think, you know, I think that that's a really interesting point. Now, I would like to mention that in the video game series... One of the funny things is that every single Umbrella facility gets blown up, which we see the countdown to that in, in the movie, but it never actually happens. So, you know, I think that that's an interesting thing to consider uh, if they blew it up. I mean, I guess blowing it up underground would also cause all kinds of problems, not the least of which is I imagine everyone's toilet would explode onto them. But I mean, this is this could cause a lot of problems. What do you think, Ben, if we exploded this thing underground, what would happen? Yeah, blowing it up, I don't think that would go so well. You have this large amount of empty space now under the city, you know, that's now air instead of being, you know, rock and dirt. And if you were to blow it up and now all of the reinforced concrete that's holding the facility and the ground above it up, if that all collapsed, I think you just end up with a huge sinkhole in the middle of the city. Uh, it'd be pretty tough to uh, hide what you did in that case. Uh, you know, you're not going to break everything and people figure out that you built this crazy lab under the city. And, and that question of blowing it up, Dan, raises, I told you I have an infinite list here, but I'm going to pick one off right off the top here. Mm. And, and Ben, you're ideally located now being right next to the Red Queen. Dan, I, I don't understand why this isn't designed where you can get any information out from the Red Queen. You mentioned wanting human control there. Um, I, I'm with you that you at least want, if not human control, human communication. Why is the only way to find out anything about my facility is to send in people through the secret entrance, right? I, I would think um, as, a as an evil corporation head um, in Umbrella, I'd want other means of accessing what was going on and probably my most relevant facility for future, um, you know, for future money making. So I don't know, Ben, is there anything in the room you're in that reveals why this is such a problem for them? Uh, no, I think this, well, I think this is just an engineering oversight. Perhaps this facility when it was built wasn't designed for the T-virus containment and it was kind of retrofitted. So they don't have that uh, connection. You know, anyone who has a murderous self-containment system built into their lab, you should have uh, external reporting of the of the telemetry from that system so that you don't have to open up the doors to find out what happened. You know, uh, the Red Queen should have sent an email to Umbrella HQ with, you know, you know, virus got out, locking down, uh, stay out. <laughs> Well, you guys, I, I cannot believe that you've seen the oversight here. You, you, we just, in the United States, I don't want to date the show, but we just had a gigantic hacking of a pipeline. You know, I mean, when you got hackers, if you if they have this thing connected to the internet, anyone can hack in. And especially if the, if the Red Queen, if your central AI system is capable of murdering everyone in the facility, I think it's completely, uh, you don't want it to be vulnerable to hackers. So I actually love that they have this little gap. And what's interesting is I 
was watching uh, a documentary on the Stuxnet virus, which is a virus that was created to stop uh, Iranian nuclear enrichment. And the, the, they had this system where you, it wasn't accessible through the internet. So the idea of putting in a virus seemed impossible. So you had to get someone physically into that facility to um, put, the, put the virus on a USB drive or whatever they did. I, I don't know how that stuff works. Um, but they had to get someone physically into the, into the system. So this does not surprise me at all. And I think it's actually a great feature, not a bug. What do you think about that? I, th- I think you're right there, but you'd still need to... You don't have to, you shouldn't have to at least go to the control, you shouldn't have to go to the bowels of the hive to get to the, the lair to get the information, you know, have it send the message to the mansion and it can still be off the internet at that point. Yeah, exactly. That's where I was going with this, Dan, is you already have a mansion connected to this, right, that apparently didn't seal itself off for some bizarre reason that they could get the train in still, um, even though everything's locked down. But you can imagine just sort of stages of, you know, where you have to go, um, depending on where you want the message to be. Um, you know, you could print out a letter and send it through some air chute that then you, you know, blow up the air chute so you can't get through the air chute anymore. But at least the letter got out, right? I don't know. I mean, there, there's, there's some creative ways you can create so you can't get at the AI to cause it to kill people, but you can still get information out. Well, I mean, I think carrier pigeons are the way to go about it. I don't know what you think there, Denim, but I think carrier pigeons might work. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> the about? carrier pigeons would get the T virus, so that's no good. Well, it, it depends. They might be in an isolated place, Ben, um, separate True. from the T virus. So exactly. I'm, I'm liking your carrier pigeons, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Denim. Yeah, I, I will say we see we even see the Red Queen like project herself into other parts of the facility to talk to the heroes. So I don't see why she couldn't have projected herself, you know, into the first room in the building to tell them what happened. I mean, it's possible. I I would say that this is a feature, not a bug, but you guys do raise up some very interesting points. And I'm guessing everyone listening is going to have their own two cents. Um, and we're going to get to them in a second. But we've got to, if we've missed anything on this show, we gotta, we're got we going to add it here in our errors, additions, and omissions section. Things we want to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Denon, did you have anything about Resident Evil, the movie, or the video game series that you wanted to talk about? Well, I actually have an interesting um, question slash error edition, Dan. I found it fascinating in the beginning that you referred to the razor-sharp laser beams. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how they sharpened the laser beams to make them razor-sharp. Um, they, they were actually very good at cutting things off. I appreciated you mentioning them, but I'm going to call you out a little bit on this. It wasn't millions of pieces. I'm estimating the guy fell into about 20 pieces, maybe 40. I don't know. Um, they were pretty big chunks when he was done. Um, so I, I, you know, I just I had to mention that Dan because I'm a laser fan and I wanted to get the lasers right. I'm I'm really intrigued also by this idea that we came up with of a lot of leftover goo. I'm now starting to understand why the hive is so big because they have to store all the failed experiments. Um, so I, I I like that piece of it. But my my biggest thing um, really is why the lasers to begin with. I'm not really sure why the AI needed that defense. Um, because it's killing everything way far away from it. Um, I, I don't know. The defense thing really confused me. That was my other error. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm, my final edition, I'm shocked I really enjoyed a zombie movie. 
So thank you. Uh, it was really good. I mean, I will tell you that the the triple the triple pass of those, and they are razor sharp for sure. They're actually sharper than a razor, I imagine. Um, and I don't have an answer for you. I don't know how you sharpen a laser, uh, but it's a very good question. Um, but I, you know, I do think that that triple pass is a little excessive. Where you have one, it's like one high, one low, and then you crisscross. Just go straight up crisscross. What are you What are you doing? That's ridiculous. Uh, so I'm with you on that. Uh, but Ben, what about you? Is there anything about this that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think the high-low crisscross kind of shows the AI has a bit of a sick sense of humor in the sense that it, you know, it wants you to try to make it and then it makes it impossible. So I, that part's kind of interesting. The other thing I like to uh, talk about here is how I love how versatile this virus is. You know, it's it's pretty rare that viruses can affect lots and lots of different living organisms. You know, we see, you know, a lot of our respiratory viruses can affect us and they affect birds and that's about it. Um, we see a lot of our, um, you know, we see rabies affecting a couple different small mammals and us, but, you know, not every kind of mammal. So I, I like this idea of this T virus that it seems to hit everything. And I like that it shows the dogs being smart and that they're barking right away. They know what's going on. I like these dogs. <laughs> Well, I mean, who doesn't like dogs? I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue with, with you on that, Ben. Uh, the one thing that I thought was odd about this movie is I don't know why they gas, and this is the movie specifically, I don't know why they gas Alice. Uh, I don't really understand the purpose of that. And then she wakes up with her head on a granite chunk. If she passed out from six feet in the air and fell headfirst onto that granite chunk, I'm not 100% sure she would survive that unscathed. Uh, I feel like concussions are in order here. I don't know if she has to go through protocol before she heads down into the into the hive. Uh, but that's what struck me there. Um, but if we've missed anything else and you want to get in touch with us, we're easy to get a hold of. You can find the show on social media. We're on Twitter at FGGGBTPod. We're on Facebook at F triple G B T. But now we have a, a, an email for your questions, comments, and general correspondence. And that's questions at F triple G B T.com. Send us a message and you may be featured on a future episode right here in this section. And of course you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name. It's at Denon Michael. And on Facebook, it's at prof Denon Michael. Just add the prof. And Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn. And always remember, whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure you subscribe and take that extra second to review and rate us. And if you're watching us on YouTube, we'd love to hear your thoughts in the comment section down below. And please like and subscribe and ring that bell if you want to hear when our latest episodes come out. And finally, don't forget, this episode contains powerful scientific information that can be misused by those bent on world domination. You don't want to be that. Be careful with this information, because remember, you want to be the superhero, not the supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? 
We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there fgbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.